0: May only the truth be spoken here, and only the truth be received. We pray this in Jesus' name. Please be seated. Well, our Gospel reading today um, could easily be written off as something that has very little to do with us today. After all, it recounts this interaction between Jesus and a Jewish sect that hasn't existed since the first century. Why do we care what their particular theology of the grave was? Isn't it enough to remember that they were adversaries of Jesus, and then as the passage recalls, he shut down their argument? Jesus won, Sadducees zero. That's what matters, right? The text offers a lot more than that. This narrative contains a teaching so powerful that it offers to all an eternal comfort and good hope, as our epistle reading refers to. Further, it is a narrative that profoundly challenges our world's understanding of Jesus. And it is a narrative that challenges the church's own co-opting of Jesus for its own other predetermined purposes. But let's backpedal a bit and ask who were the Sadducees? Of course those of you that are uh, New Testament scholars will be well acquainted with this, uh, but maybe there's someone here who hasn't even yet done New Testament intro. Well, the Sadducees were one of the sects of Judaism from, and they existed from roughly the second century BC to 70 AD. They were distinguished by their focus on the written Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, and on the natural world. They rejected, for instance, the Pharisees' focus on the prophetic writings and the oral tradition of Judaism. They rejected what they saw as newfangled theology, including beliefs in the resurrection, angels, and the immortality of the soul. The Sadducees came mostly from the upper strata of Jerusalem society, made up of priests and lay people from aristocratic families, many of them, wealthy merchants, and influential leaders. They were a group, the scholars tell us, that were heavily influenced by Hellenistic culture. And because they enjoyed good relations with the Romans, their privileged social and economic status was even further fortified. Naturally, perhaps, they were also defenders of this socio-religious status quo. And they favored compromise with the Roman rulers. But the thing that set the Sadducees most apart was their connection with the temple, since the high priests were selected from their ranks. And it was this close association with the temple that would prove to be their downfall. The Jewish uprising against Rome in 66 AD resulted in a fierce response from the empire, who in 70 AD entered Jerusalem, burned it, tore it down, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered or enslaved the city's residents. With the end of the temple came the end of the Sadducees. Their privileged social, economic, and religious status could not save them. But of course, that was all way ahead for the Sadducees that engaged Jesus that day. They were simply well healed well-bred movers and shakers who preferred a traditional religion focused on the here and now. They weren't above theological debate as long as it recognized logic and lived human experience. And despite their position of privilege and prestige, they weren't above engaging a wandering uh, rabbi from Galilee if it meant they could shore up one of their key doctrinal distinctives. So they posed a question to Jesus. But it wasn't really a question, was it? We've all been to academic conferences, or workshops, or board meetings, or even synods in which questions are really something else. The Sadducees were simply using the guise of a question to shore up their own position on an issue. At the heart of their argument was a satirical scenario meant to mock what they saw as a ludicrous and illogical belief in life beyond the grave. They weren't interested in Jesus. They were simply co-opting Jesus for their own particular end to refute the resurrection. So they constructed a hypothetical case based on Deuteronomy 25, one of the Mosaic teachings there, the law of what's now called Leveret Marriage. This law was meant to preserve a man's line of descent, thereby keeping land in a given family. If a man died without leaving an heir, his brother would marry his widow and father children in the dead man's name. This religious law from the Mosaic writings focused on very reasonable things, things the Sadducees cared about, preserving lineage and land. The Sadducees used this law to construct a scenario involving a childless woman being widowed and subsequently married again and again and again seven times in total. You have to ask, was it meant as a sick joke? It was certainly meant to highlight the utter chaos that would result if there really was a resurrection. Apparently the great dilemma was, of the seven brothers, whose wife would she be? Whose wife would this miserable bad luck barren woman be? Obviously, there can't be a resurrection. Who would own the woman? Jesus's response tells us a lot about him. First, he argues from the writings of Moses, rather than the prophets or the oral tradition. In other words, he meets the Sadducees on their own ground. He says, the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed. In the story about the bush, when he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus refers not only to a key event in the life of Moses, he points all the way back to the patriarchs who formed the very bedrock of Judaism. But it's not Jesus' argument itself that is the only compelling thing in this Gospel reading. I think it is the authority with which he offers the argument. He speaks of God with such an astonishing familiarity, saying simply, He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. He speaks of time with such timeless authority. Juxtaposing this age with that age, making it crystal clear that it's that age that you want to be considered worthy to be a part of. He speaks of life beyond the grave with such casual knowledge, saying those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore. They are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. He speaks of death with such boldness, saying simply, the dead are raised. What was the Sadducees' response? Well, we'd have to go the next verse from where our reading ends. Verse 39 says, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. As Christians, we do not believe that people who have died are people over whom death has triumphed forever. We are not Sadducees. We Christians believe in the resurrection, something we affirm every time we say the Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We believe that, not because it's logical. Indeed, it remains a mystery. We believe that because we trust in the authority and the power and the majesty of the One who not only told us so, but showed us so. Paul knew about this. In his letter to the Colossians, he writes of Jesus, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The preeminence of Christ and his resurrection. This is what we Christians believe and what we must preach and teach. And the reason we must do so is that despite the Sadducees disappearing a long time ago, there are still many people today who are trusting in their positions of economic and social and even religious privilege to save them. There are still many people today Only interested in Jesus as a means to some other end, to shore up their particular position or to raise the profile of their particular cause. Of course, just as this was done by a group of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago, it can certainly be done by Christians today. Don't kid yourself as an academic or as a pastor if you think you won't at times be tempted to co-opt Jesus for your own project, to shore up your own particular definition of success, maybe, to reshape the gospel ever so slightly so that Jesus ends up becoming little more than a means to some other end even ends that might be good things, like growing a church or countering some injustice. Using his name, but denying his power and authority. And how else might we encounter or even be ourselves the Sadducees of today? Well, there are still many people today who deny the mystery of life beyond the grave. And so have not considered the crucial question of whether they might be considered worthy of a place in that age. As Christian academics and as pastors in God's church, we must not say more than we can about life beyond the grave, some have, but as followers of Christ we are given his words and his resurrected life to speak to others. And at the very heart of the gospel is a call for people to consider what it takes to be considered worthy of a place in that age. It's a message of both God's grace and a call to offer one's life in service to him. The Sadducees settled for a very limited religion, and it offered them very limited hope. The first Christians, though, along with Christians throughout the ages, grasped something much grander the reality of the Day of Resurrection. The Day of the Lord, as it was sometimes called. Something that supersedes the reality that we now know, but which has been affirmed in both our Lord's words and in his resurrected life. We are to tell the world of a resurrected Messiah, who is the living water, The bread of life, whose love will never let us go, whose sacrifice was sufficient to make all who desire so to be made worthy, to be children of God and children of the resurrection. To have committed our lives to Christ Jesus is already to have been welcomed into that mystery that is eternal life. In short, we don't need to be afraid of death. You pastors, don't be afraid to tell people that. You will encounter many people that are terribly afraid, and they've never been given that hope. We don't need to be afraid of death. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is also the God of you and I. It's a gift, pure and simple, and it's offered to everyone. Our most amazing commission is to help as many people as possible receive and open that gift. May God bless us all with the privilege of doing so. Amen.